Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. You're listening to Thunder and Lightning on Super Talk Mississippi. Covering Mississippi State sports like nobody else. With Sports Talk Mississippi's Brian Haydad and Robbie Falk of 24-7 Sports. Powered by Taylor Construction Equipment. Whether you're looking to rent, lease, buy, or for service, contact Taylor Construction Equipment today at taylorconstructionequipment.com. Now get ready for Thunder and Lightning. This is a special edition of Thunder and Lightning here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Brian Haydad. Thanks for joining me here at supertalk.fm or wherever it is you get podcasts from. I appreciate all you guys out there, our great listeners, especially our servicemen and women out there taking care of us. So what we've got here today, a couple of special shows here. Uh, well, I'd say today. They'll, they'll be over the, the, this week. We're going to do one today and one a little later uh, in the week. Then we got some compilations here. These are all of our SEC spring wraparound interviews. So we've got one here for the SEC West and one for the SEC East. Today we're going to do the East. So we've got a total of seven interviews. So if you just want to come back and listen to these interviews in one place or whatever you want to do, it's just right here for you. I thought I'd make it easier on you. Uh, you know, something maybe you can refer back to as we get closer and closer to the season. And some good information there. So we'll just start it off right now. We'll start with the uh, the defending national champions, the Georgia Bulldogs, and we'll go from there to Florida, Kentucky, uh, South Carolina, Tennessee, Missouri, and Vanderbilt. We'll start off with my interview with Jordan Hill from Dogs 24-7. I caught up with him to talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. So this week on our spring wraparound, you know, two programs Mississippi State will not be playing this year, but I feel like these are two very intriguing teams in the SEC, and we're going to start with the defending that the two-time defending national champions, the Georgia Bulldogs, Jordan Hill from Dogs Twenty Four Seven, joins us. My my thought is this: that you know this is a quarterback battle to replace a guy who might be the most underrated college football player of all time. I mean, if I said name the greatest college quarterback of all time, I don't think anybody would say Stetson Bennett in the first five six names. But he's a guy with two national titles and great numbers. That's a heck of a legacy to try to to to, to step into for some young guys. What are the early returns on the on the quarterback battle at Georgia? You know, it's been two guys that have really put themselves forward, and it's the two most experienced guys. It's Carson Beck, who is going to be a junior in 2023, and it's Brock Vandegrift, who is a redshirt sophomore. Um, you know, it's a situation with these two guys um, where I think it's a battle that's going to go into the fall, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a surprise. You know, Carson Beck was the number two behind Stetson during the 2022 season. He played, I believe, in five games. He kind of came in mop-up duty and played pretty well, even though those games were out of reach. Uh, and then you have Brock Vandegrift, who is a little bit younger than Carson and is a guy that um, has had to bide his time. I mean, he has yet to complete a pass at Georgia, and he's only had – maybe five or six attempts in his time, but both to perform really well uh, based on everything we've heard and also what the coaches have told us, what their teammates have said, they have stepped up to the challenge. And, you know, I think a lot of people had questions of if this sort of this battle had reset itself with Todd Munkin leaving Mike Bobo stepping up as the offensive coordinator, you know, it still seems like Carson Beck, who, like I said, is the older guy sort of has the edge, but that anything can happen, and I think we're going to learn a lot uh, on April 15th when Georgia plays its G-Day scrimmage, uh, just how those guys handle it, how they handle fans watching them uh, playing in Sanford Stadium. 
Uh, I think it's a battle that has not been decided. I don't think it'll be decided at G-Day, and I think it's one that very well could go into the actual season. What is the offense going to look like now with that change from Munkin to Bobo? You know, Bobo's name was thrown around over here uh, for, for a few minutes as a potential offensive coordinator candidate. That ended up not – I don't even know if that was true or not, to be honest with you, at any point. But then he gets the Georgia job. That's a job he's got a lot of familiarity with. But, you know, from a different time when college football offenses, quite frankly, were a little bit different, does does he fit into what Georgia wants to do offensively in 2023? Well, yeah, Brian, there was a lot of legitimate uh, chatter about Mike Bobo potentially going to Starkville. And, you know, I think he decided he was going to save the course at Georgia, and it worked out for him with Todd Munkin deciding to go to the NFL. And there have been smoke around Todd going really for that entire playoff run for Georgia this past one. So, yeah, the, the question is, what is this offense going to look like? Uh, no surprise, Kirby Smart was asked about that uh, going uh, just right after Georgia's second scrimmage uh, of the spring. And he really downplayed it and said, look, you know, we're really more looking at uh, which players can help us and we can kind of make the identity and kind of find the personality of this offense. And, you know, since Mike Bobo was hired, I would say that the response from fans is kind of lukewarm. You know, he was a guy that had the position for eight years from 07 to 14 when Mark Rick was the head coach. And they had a lot of success, but I think a lot of people uh, hold some of the failures along the way against Mike Bobo. And some of that, I think, is not exactly fair. Uh, But I think the thing that people are so worried about on the Georgia side, the fans that worry about Mike Bobo, is the fact that, uh, you know, they feel like he's going to change things. And I think there were changes coming, even if Todd Munkin had come back. You lose Stetson Bennett, you lose several playmakers, a guy like A.D. Mitchell, you lose Darnell Washington, who is just a freak. I mean, you talk about unicorns in football, and he's one of them. His size and his ability to move uh, is just absurd. So, you know, I think had Todd even stayed, you were looking at a situation where last year Georgia ran so many two tight end sets to get – uh, Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington on the field at the same time. Uh, now Darnell's gone. They've still got talent behind Brock at tight end. But now you've got a really, really deep wide receiver room that includes Rara Thomas, a guy that Mich- uh, that uh, Mississippi State fans know well. Um, you know, I think that's a situation where you're going to see more of those three wide receiver sets, maybe even see four, you know, go four or five uh, receivers out there because they have – a very deep room now and an offense that I think uh, they look at specifically with the wide receivers, uh, guys that can get downfield and make plays. So, uh, you know, Mike Bobo had really made a name for himself as a coordinator and he followed this uh, after he was at Georgia the first time with being willing to run the ball, um, you know, go, uh, uh, north to south, running hard. And I think there will be um, some opportunities for that with Georgia's backfield. Uh, but I think that they understand they really have some playmakers out wide. And uh, as successful as last year's offense was, they still didn't hit the program points per game record, which was set in 2014, the last time Mike Bobo was the offensive coordinator. So I think uh, there's still a lot of questions about what this offense should look like, but uh, I think that there's a potential for it to look a little bit different, but that uh, different will not necessarily be a bad thing. You kind of hit on my next question there. Obviously, this being a Mississippi State podcast, Ra Ra Thomas is a name of interest to Mississippi State fans. Off the field issues this winter, but seems to have that seems to have gone away, and and, and the charges have been dropped there. And now I know he's competing in spring practice. What's what's his role going to look like for Georgia this fall? 
Yeah, he, uh, like you mentioned, Brian, he had handled the situation and, and worked with authorities to uh, drop those charges. So it seems like as far as that goes, um, you know, he's been full go in spring ball. I'll be curious once we get into the season if there's still a suspension, maybe a couple game suspension. Um, so we still don't know on that front. But from what he's done during spring ball, I think he's lived up to the hype. I think he's a guy that I think early on he and, and really too Dominic Lovett, who is another receiver transfer they got, uh, Dominic from Missouri. I think their hits were kind of spinning early on because of what's expected of the receivers, the things – Georgia expects their guys to know, and uh, I think it kind of took Rara a little bit of time to get up to speed. But based on what we've been hearing lately, he's been living up to the hype and the expectation of when he uh, committed to Georgia. A lot of people thought, okay, this is probably our number one X receiver, and I think he's performing very much like you would expect. And uh, after the first scrimmage of spring, Kirby Smart told us, um, you know, that he liked what he saw in Rara and said that his ability to make plays downfield, it sounds like kind of surprised the coaching staff with just his ability to do so. Uh, so I think he's going to play a really big role. I would expect by the time we get to the fall uh, that he will be a starter and will be a guy that's counted on to do a lot. And, and again, you know, I think he will eventually, you know, to start the year probably miss some time, how much it's hard to say. Um, but I think as far as uh, playing wise, he set himself up well. And I think he could be one of those guys when the Georgia scrimmage is said and done uh, on April 15th, uh, that uh, fans could really be talking a good bit about Rara. When you play at the level Georgia does, you know, year in, year out, you're going to be replacing stars. That's it's just part of the, of the game for the elite uh, teams. Other than Stetson Bennett, who's the biggest name Georgia has to replace starting in this spring? I think it's Jalen Carter. You know, it's a guy that I think could have been one of the top picks and probably will still be a top 10 pick when it's said and done. Um, and then some of the off-the-field issues, the car accident he was involved in on January 15th, it seems like has um, affected his draft stock. But still, just a, a very impressive player. You know, he played uh, essentially on one foot last year. He had an ankle injury that he played through. And down the stretch, I mean, he was just unblockable. And they've got to find a way to fill that production, even if it takes two, three guys to do it, uh, because he was so helpful. And, uh, you know, something that Georgia – even as much success as they had last year, something they kind of called a little flack for was their inability to get sacks. And, uh, you know, the the thing that Kirby kept going back to when he was asked about the lack of sacks was, you know, creating havoc, at least getting back there and pressure and uh, the opposing quarterback. Jalen did that quite a bit. And uh, Kirby was asked about the defensive line, those defensive tackles this year. And, uh, he didn't downplay losing Jalen Carter because it would be foolish to do so because he's a very, very talented defensive lineman. But he said he really feels good that they may have more depth at that position compared to where they were a year ago just because some of the guys that have been coming along. Uh, Bear Alexander, I think, is going to wind up starting in that position that Jalen played last year. Uh, Bear was a very, very highly recruited uh, player in the 2022 class, and he came on when he got to play down the stretch of that 2022 season. I think he's got a chance to be a household name by the time it's said and done. Uh, they got other guys, veterans like Nazir Stackhouse, who started at that nose tackle position. I would expect him to do that again uh, this year. Uh, Zion Logue is another senior, Warren Brinson. Uh, they've got a lot of experience. If I had to guess, the guy is probably going to be Bear Alexander lined up beside Nazir Stackhouse. 
Um, but it's asking a lot to replace somebody as talented as Jalen Carter was, uh, a guy who, even when he was not playing 100%, uh, just wreaked havoc on opposing offensive lines. Uh, it's probably not going to come easy, but they've definitely still got talent on that defensive line, and I think eventually they're going to have the guys step up who can help this defensive line uh, be as productive as it has been in the past few years. When you recruit like Georgia does, you know there's always going to be an impact five-star freshman. There's going to be some freshman in that class who comes in day one and is just just that elite player. Who is it this year for Georgia? I'll give you a couple names, guys we've heard a lot about. And starting on offense, I would go with a four-star and Lawson Lucky, a tight end. You know, Georgia's tight end room was so deep last year, and Mississippi State fans uh, are probably excited about some of the changes with Rylan Goaty coming over Mm -hmm. to Starkville. Very talented guy that, frankly, just had trouble seeing the field because of the talent in that room. Uh, Georgia lost three tight ends to the portal from the 2022 team. They reloaded with two four-stars, and one of them was Lawson Lucky. And there may not be a guy, Brian, that we've heard more about this spring than Lawson Lucky. He's a guy that was one of the – Uh, Players, Georgia had nine signees in the 2023 class who enrolled in December, was able to go through bowl practices. And uh, it sounds like Lawson really made the most of that time and has been turning heads this spring. The very first scrimmage they had, he called a couple touchdowns. I think he's a guy, even with uh, Brock Bowers in front of him, who, you know, we all know what Brock Bowers is, and he'll have a chance to go win the Mackey Award for a second year. And uh, Oscar Delp, a sophomore in front of him. I think Lawson Lucky could find his way on the field sooner rather than later. And then on defense, C.J. Allen, who's an inside linebacker, sort of a similar situation with Lawson Lucky. Uh, they are very deep at inside linebacker. They bring back Smile Munden and Jamon Dumas Johnson both. Uh, but C.J. Allen's a guy that's a true freshman that, uh, much like Lawson, came in in December and just really impressed, you know, at the end uh, of the, you know, after the national championship game, you know, 65-7 victory for Georgia. And before Kirby Smart leaves the post-game press conference, he starts naming scout team guys that they felt really set themselves up well to play TCU. He said that these guys had played TCU's defense even better than TCU did in practice. And C.J. Allen was one of those guys. I mean, think about, you know, a guy that was just a few weeks removed from playing, you know, maybe a month or so removed from playing high school football and is asked to help a a team that's vying for a national championship, helping them in bowl practice. C.J. Allen lived up to that expectation and, and that challenge. And from everything we've heard, he's continued to do that during spring ball. I, I think that he's one of those guys that you can't uh, do anything but get him on the field. You have no excuse. And um, he's going to have his work cut out for him just because how deep inside linebacker is. Uh, and it's a credit to what Glenn Schumann has done recruiting that position year after year. But uh, I think people are going to know who C.J. Allen is, whether it's just him getting on special teams and probably laying out a few people. Uh, He's a really talented guy, and uh, I think eventually he will get an opportunity to shine in the Georgia defense. All right, this is the question we're asking everybody who does these interviews with us. What are we saying about Georgia when we get to the end of the season? I mean, you look at that schedule, Jordan, and you think they have a really great shot to go undefeated again and be right back in the SEC championship game and right back in the college football playoff. Is that your expectation for this Georgia team? 
It is uh, just because of the talent in that schedule. And I think the biggest thing that's going to be really interesting to follow through the season, Brian, is can they afford any slip-ups? Let's say they do go 11-1, and which is still a, a very good season. And given what they just lost off of the 2022 team, I still think should be considered a successful season. But if they go 11-1, and I mean, they could very well be left out of the college football playoff just because of the competition they're playing. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a very talented team. I think the biggest question mark for me at this point uh, really comes with the pressure they're going to have on the defensive side. Can they get after guys, losing guys like we talked about with a Jalen Carter and also other playmakers like Nolan Smith? Uh, I think this is a team capable, even with knowing that whoever wins this quarterback battle is going to be a first-time starter. I think this is a team that, um, at the very least, you know, will be in the mix to be undefeated. Uh, but if uh, if they fall short of going undefeated, where does that leave this team? Because uh, their non-conference schedule is not very strong, and they've got a pretty good setup as far as their conference games. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of room for error and uh, once we get through the season, it will be fascinating to see if they did not go undefeated, just sort of where they are in terms of the playoff. We'll see what happens over there in Athens uh, this fall. Should be another fun season for you to cover. Jordan Hill from Dogs 24-7, man. Thanks so much for the time. Absolutely. Let's continue looking around the SEC. Another opponent that Mississippi State doesn't have on the schedule, but I think a very intriguing opponent or a team in a a, a a program that I have, my, we've had our eye on the past few years ever since Dan Mullen went down there uh, from Mississippi State. That's the Florida Gators. Graham Hall joins us now uh, from Swamp 24 7. And Graham, I mean, the first question is kind of obvious. What's the temperature around Billy Napier in year two? I, I mean, this is Florida. Six and seven is not what the Florida Gators are, are used to, or they're not what they're going to accept. You know, what's what's the situation with him going into his second year in Gainesville? I think the external narrative has been a little bit negative, right? You always have the high after a coaching hire where there's a lot of optimism that there's going to be improvement and seeing that not necessarily come to fruition on the field last year was a little bit difficult for fans of a Florida program with really, really high expectations for the past three decades. Really that was tough for them to swallow, especially when you looked at now, even more so, the, the fact that they may have had a top five quarterback prospect at the position, uh, a top right guard in Osiris Torrance, a really good defensive tackle, three guys that are probably going to go within the first 60 picks, two potential first-round picks right there, and you go six and seven, I think that that was tough for a lot of people. This year, there's even been some more drama from Jaden Rashada, losing three assistant coaches, albeit to the NFL, which is, in my opinion, a good thing. That is really, I think, tough for fans. And then you bring in Graham Mertz, a guy who there's definitely some divisive opinions about him. A lot of people outside the program don't necessarily think that they're going to get this guy who's going to come in and throw for 4,000 yards, right? But a lot of people inside the program think that they have a guy who can manage the offense a little bit better. They're high on the additions. They think that they did well in the transfer portal. The guys coming back, they're obviously high on from Jason Marshall to Montrell Johnson and Ricky Pearsall. If all those pieces come together and the improvements come to fruition, they could have a better than six and seven finish. But a lot of question marks for a fan base that was hoping there would be a few less questions after one year with Billy Napier. So this isn't a quarterback battle going into the spring between Mertz and, and Jack Miller. Miller is clearly the backup at this point. 
Sean, I'm glad you asked because I don't get that sense at all. I think a lot of people expected Graham Mertz to be quote unquote handed the job. Billy Napier made it clear he doesn't hand anyone jobs, even though going back to last year, Ricky Pearsall comes in from Arizona State and instantly gets the number one jersey, which is a coveted thing within the program before he's ever practiced with the team. Graham Mertz, that's not the case. This is a guy who's going to have to beat out Jack Miller. I've said time and time that, again, there's kind of an old saying, especially in the NFL, but also in college football, I think that you don't lose your job due to injury. That's the case with Jack Miller. He made an eight-month ascension last year, beat out Jalen Kitna, became the number two quarterback. And last year, guys, he really had no chance of winning that job. Anthony Richardson took the majority of the first string snaps throughout spring camp last year. Then Miller gets hurt in fall camp, has the thumb avulsion fracture, the same injury that Drew Brees had back in 2019, but it was actually a little bit worse for Jack Miller. He still had a tough time gripping the football there in late November, had a not-so-great performance against Oregon State. He's a year ahead of Mertz in terms of familiarity with the personnel, the offense, the system. I think he has a chance still to win the job. It's no one's job. It's no one's you know starting gig right now. There's going to be competition Going into fall camp, in my opinion, while Mertz does have the experience and is a little bit older, I do see a, a potential where Jack Miller can win the job. I think there are still some questions with Miller. He needs to be better about not getting passes batted down at the line, but he's got a good ball. There's another quarterback i got to mention on the roster before I finish this answer. Michael Leone, a really, really interesting one. If one of those two quarterbacks falter in some sense, they brought in this guy who's in his seventh year of football, played at UConn, was at NC State, former walk-on, doesn't have much action, but he is physically capable, 25 years old, throws an impressive ball in my mind. I'm no coach or serious NFL evaluator, but I think the guy throws a pretty impressive ball. I could see a potential where he gets on the field in some capacity, as crazy as that sounds as a walk-on. That's just the state of Florida's quarterback room right now where they didn't add Jaden Rashada and lost a guy after three years, and Anthony Richardson, who could go within the top five of the upcoming NFL draft. When I think about Florida, you mentioned you know they might have three players in the top sixty, and obviously Richardson is one of them. But this is Florida, you know, where where you think there's stars at the skill position almost every year. You know, for decades, the best wide receivers and some of the best running backs were Florida Gators. Who are the the stars on this team? Who are the guys that are going to carry this team from an offensive standpoint? I'm going to say Montrell Johnson. I mean, that guy has been incredible in my mind since he's been in college. Starts out at Louisiana under Napier, has an 800-plus rushing yard season. We haven't seen too many of those, honestly, in Gainesville due to some of the rotations and some injuries within the room. Has some great success at Florida. Beats out some older guys in Lorenzo Lingard and Naquan Wright. Is the first string back for the team last year. Has some ways to improve still now in his third year. Needs to become better at becoming a pass-catching back. But he is a tremendous option. He is going to absolutely break off some big runs for the Gators this year. And Billy Napier is a run-first head coach. Before he got here, most of his offenses hovered around 50 to 60% split of run pass. That is a guy who likes to run the football, sometimes slow it down and, and eat up clock at times. And I think you're going to see the split of Montreal Johnson and Trevor Etienne really lead the way for this offense. It's not going to be an offense that expects Graham Mertz to come out and throw for 300 yards for the Gators to win. At wideout, you get Ricky Pearsall back, which is obviously, in my opinion, I think the biggest win for the returnees for the Gators, uh, especially on offense. That guy is tremendous. He can get open better than anyone. 
And then, you know, I'll, I'll mention Arliss Boardingham because Napier loves to run a lot of 12-man personnel. They didn't get the tight ends involved too much last year. They had the two returning guys go down in spring camp. Dante Zanner's working his way back. But Keon Zipper, Florida's leading pass-catching tight end last year, gone for the season with a torn ACL. So one of those younger guys, they have five underclassmen, is going to have to step up. I think Arliss Boardingham is going to be the guy who actually makes an impact in the pass-catching game. From what I've heard, kind of a Kyle Pitts light in terms of his athleticism and how he can get open. Not as big as Kyle Pitts, but a guy who can get open and make some catches and has some speed. And I can see him being used this season in the offense for Florida to have some success in the pass-catching game. Those are the big ones. I'll also mention freshman Andy Jean. A lot of people high on him and what he can do this year as a true freshman early enrollee. That's Florida's situation right now. They lost four receivers from last year's team, so a lot of guys looking to step up this year. Arliss Boardingham is just a great A-tier name. (laughs) Absolutely. We're putting him in the top tier of names. Um, A name that Mississippi State fans, or at least people here in the state of Mississippi, might be familiar with is Austin Armstrong. Was at Southern Miss last year, did a great job with their defense. Takes a job at Alabama as an assistant coach, but when Florida's defensive coordinator job comes open, that's I mean, this is a pretty meteoric rise. You know, you, you, last year he was a group of five coordinator. Now he's one of the top programs in the country's defensive coordinator. What do you expect from this Florida Gator defense that struggled at times last year under this new coordinator? I definitely think the meteoric rise is a good way to frame it, but the context I think is a little bit uh, more interesting. This is a guy that. As you know, up there at Southern Miss, he was the youngest defensive coordinator two years ago in the nation. So he's had the limelight on him for, what, 700-plus days. Goes to Alabama, has worked at Georgia under Kirby Smart. Goes to Alabama this past offseason for, what, all of two weeks. And was used to kind of being there in the inside linebackers room. Florida instantly identified him as the ideal replacement for Patrick Tony when Tony left. For the NFL, and the reason why that they zeroed in on him right away is because there was strong belief, from what I've gathered, that there were still other programs, Power Five programs, looking to poach Armstrong this off season if Florida didn't come calling with that defensive coordinator job. That's how highly coveted apparently this guy is, and whether he lives up to those high expectations, I think obviously remains to be seen. A little bit unproven in the SEC, but a very, very confident guy, high energy makes you want to play for him, has gained the respect of those within the defense in just, what, a month in Gainesville. And I think the most important thing is that it's not going to be, even though it is a quote-unquote new defense and there's some complex elements and Florida's going to be multidimensional and kind of all three levels of the defense, I think that there's a lot of similarities between Austin Armstrong and Patrick Tony. Those guys are like, I got to say, those guys are kind of like best friends. Not to say that, you know, there's any vouching for necessarily here, but Patrick Tony has clearly vouched for Austin Armstrong and the affinity that Armstrong had for Tony and his system and his terminology, I think, has made it kind of a seamless transition in a sense. I know people throw that phrase around a lot, but that really is what it is here. And I think that kind of speaks, obviously, to how much fraternity elements there are here in college football, but it's one of those ways when you're a program like Florida where the NFL calendar has been pushed back a year with that extra game and you lose a coach right before spring camp, sometimes you need to rely on some familiarity elements, whether it's Austin Armstrong coming in, a defensive coordinator, or Billy Gonzalez coming back for his third stint in Gainesville. I mean, guys, I've been here nine years. I didn't think I would cover Billy Gonzalez again, but he is back at the program. You know what he did 
and Mississippi State, especially during that, what, 2016 season, I believe, where that offense was fantastic, broke so many records. He comes back again, and part of the reason, I think, for that was his familiarity with Gainesville, the, the personnel having been here, what, 16 months ago, and you lose a guy right before spring camp and don't replace them until the middle of spring camp, you maybe need to rely on some familiarity, whether that's Gonzalez or Austin Armstrong, or even retaining and elevating a guy like Russ Calloway, who's Florida's new tight ends coach. Last question, and this is what we're asking everybody who does the, the spring previews with us. When we get to November, you know, final week of the regular season after the Florida-Florida State game, what are we saying about the Gators? That's a really tough question, honestly. I'm glad you're asking everyone. Um, I hope that you don't save this and hold it over my head when Florida... I'm, I'm straight to old takes exposed on every one of you, yeah. I, there's a part of me that respects it because you got to hold us over the fire to what we predict. You can ask me a prediction at any time, and I have no problem being wrong, and I try not to gloat when I'm right. But right now, unfortunately, and Florida fans may not want to hear it, but there are so many unproven elements on this team. The additions, the amount of attrition from last year, I have a lot of unknowns right now where it's hard for me to see Florida right now doing better than 7-5 and five in 2023. There's about six teams on that schedule that have a case to be ranked within the top 25 if they aren't already, if you put any stock into those way-too-early top 25 rankings that come out around this time of year. I think that that alone, having to go out to Utah, they're going to potentially – uh, more than likely actually start a true freshman at left guard in that game out there at Utah. All the elements for this team, this could be kind of a little bit more of a foundational year than a lot of people were hoping for when many people were expecting Billy Napier to have that jump from year one to year two that he had at Louisiana, where he goes from seven and five to winning double digit, uh, having double, double digit win seasons for three straight years. I don't know if that's going to happen right now in the SEC you can't obviously say that's a seamless transition to use that callback right there. I do think that six and six, seven and five is more likely right now than eight and four, nine and three. Not to say that they can't do that because crazy things happen. And a lot of Florida's games last year came down to just a couple of plays, and they ultimately were in three games last year on the very final play. So you're talking about three plays technically being the difference between a nine and three season and the six and six finish. So with that being said, I do think that Florida right now, I'm going to say seven and five. If they are seven and five heading into that bowl game, I actually do think that there's a very optimistic perspective you can have about that given the amount of questions and how this coaching staff has adapted and how players improved upon last season, if they do that, but there will be a lot of disappointment if Florida looks stuck in the mud and goes six and six or worse potentially this season, because that does not look like the improvement that this coaching staff and these personnel in Gainesville think that they are making right now as spring camp approaches its conclusion tomorrow. Yeah. I sort of took my follow-up question there when you said seven and five, my, my ears perked up a little bit, but you know, I, I would imagine that it's seven and five, six and six year three becomes win nine, or you're going to be looking for a job. I do think that there's absolutely a testament to that. Maybe there's a perspective where there's an understanding that the SEC, and I know that so many people say this, but maybe you guys will, will not rip me to shreds for, for being a little bit biased here. So many people say that the SEC is harder. And even if you're winning eight games, you're doing a lot of things right. And a lot of those games are coming down to a couple of plays 
And that's sometimes the difference of, of being Texas A&M and being Georgia is just a couple of plays. I know that Texas A&M fans love to say that, and Georgia fans don't want to believe that, but that's the reality. Kirby Smart, I know that he won double-digit games in Athens almost immediately there, but it took him six years to get over the top. And I do think that there are Florida fans, especially recently, under Jim McElwain, Will Muschamp, especially uh, under Dan Mullen, who even if they win double-digit games, they're not going to be happy. They're only going to be content with winning the SEC and competing for a national championship. Getting to the college football playoff, which Florida has not done, if they can do that under Napier, whether it takes three, four, five years, I think that people will be content. Whether they're patient enough to see through this process remains to be seen. Scott Strickland, to bring the last Mississippi State connection in here, yeah. he, I have a lot of respect for him, and I think he knows that. But the reality is, the narrative is that he needs a success at coach. Jeremy Foley did a really great job at hiring coaches at Florida, built them into an all-around program. There's a reason why they have as many national championships and especially as SEC championships across just, what, 21 sports as they do, while the football success has kind of fallen by the wayside for the last decade. It's because of the coaching across those sports. That hasn't been the case necessarily under Scott Strickland, not to put all the blame on him whatsoever, but he has to have a, a hit in many of the eyes of the fan base when it comes to hiring a head coach. And so maybe due to that, Napier gets a little bit longer of a leash than many people would think on the outside. They have $50 million tied to Billy Napier. I would not be shocked if he does go into year four, just like Dan Mullen did and gets a little bit more time. Um, because I think that there are some factors here where you can't just absolutely judge it by what many think in the college football sphere, if that makes sense. Yeah. We shall see. Florida will be, like I said, a very interesting team to watch this year as they try to uh, to rebound from a disappointing 2022. Graham Hall, Swamp 24-7. Great stuff, man. Really appreciate your time. Always my pleasure. Got to do it again. Y'all take care up there. All right. Back on track alphabetically today on the uh, Spring Wraparound Series. We'll do Kentucky. With our friend John Hale from the Lexington Herald leader. John, Will Levis off to the NFL, likely a top 10 pick, depending on you know which mock draft you look at. But is it possible that Kentucky is a little more consistent this year at quarterback with, with Devin Leary there? Uh, it's possible. I mean, obviously, the, the first step is Devin Leary has to stay healthy. Yeah. Um, he tore his pectoral muscle, I think, game six um, at NC State last year, missed the rest of the season. He was healthy enough to be a full participant in spring. He was technically on a bit of a pitch count, but they rotate so much in practice, I don't think it ever became a factor. Uh, he also missed part of a season uh, at his previous school with a broken leg, so health has been an issue for him at times. But his one healthy full season as the starter, he was one of five finalists for the Johnny United's Golden Arm Award. He threw 35 touchdowns and five interceptions that year. So we know at his best, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And I definitely think you can make the argument that while he's not anywhere close to the NFL draft prospect Will Levis is, he might be a better college quarterback. Plus, everyone around him should be better this year than they were for Will Levis. All those receivers are a year older. They're rebuilding the offensive line. Uh, that will help him a lot, too. So I think there's, you know, I, I think the odds would suggest the offense is better this year, even though they lost a, a possible top 10 pick. And then in the backfield, I mean, Kentucky the past you know five, six years has just had that guy in the backfield, somebody they could rely on to, to get yardage. Who is it this year? 
I think it's going to be more by committee. It will remind me of there was kind of a bridge year between Benny Snell and Chris Rodriguez where they split carries between Rodriguez, A.J. Rose, and Cavassier Smoke. I think it's going to be closer to that, but it appears the main guy, the featured back, will be Ray Davis, the transfer from Vanderbilt. Um, Kentucky knows what he can do up front because he torched them in that game where they got embarrassed by Vanderbilt at home last year. Uh, he's not quite Chris Rodriguez in terms of his ability to like break through tackles, but he is you know, kind of a little bowling ball kind of guy who gets tough yards. I think he had 500-yard games in SEC play last year. So he's proven himself at this level. He's a veteran. He's got a great backstory. He's a guy that I think can be a positive presence in that locker room as well. But you'll also see guys like Jaton McClain, uh, who kind of came on last year at, at times, uh, be a, an important player. Uh, they have a, a, a transfer from a year ago, uh, Ramon Jefferson, who transferred from Sam Houston State, started his career at Maine, where he actually played for Liam Cohen as a freshman. He's been in college football for that long. Wow. He tore his ACL on the first drive of Kentucky's uh, home op- or season opener last season. So his he missed spring practice. He works his way back from that, but he got an extra year of eligibility. Uh, if he's healthy, he could be a factor. And then they have a freshman they really like, Jamarion Wilcox, who they signed late in the spring. Um, he's going to have every chance, I think, to earn a spot in this rotation. So multiple guys, but Ray Davis uh, maybe first among the group. You mentioned it a minute ago, rebuilding the offensive line. That was a real issue for Kentucky last year. Couldn't protect Will Levis for the most part, gave up a ton of sacks. You know, they're going to be improved. They have to be improved for Kentucky to be better this year, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The first step in that is they added Marcus Cox uh, from Northern Illinois, who's going to come in and take over the left tackle position. Um, he's a guy, another transfer, it was a theme this year, who played against Kentucky last season, impressed them while they were scouting for that game. He actually tore some ligaments in his foot against Kentucky and missed the rest of the season, but he had a game and a half back-to-back against Vanderbilt Kentucky, I think put enough on film for them to be confident he can play at this level. Uh, and from all indications, this spring was a, a big upgrade at that position. And then adding him allows them to kind of move everybody else to a, a better spot. So Kenneth Horsey who was a really good guard two years ago, played left tackle out of necessity last year. Now he comes back for his extra year of eligibility, slides back to his left guard position. They flip-flop, or they moved Jagger Burton from left guard to center, and Eli Cox from center to right guard, where Cox was a midseason All-American in 21 when Liam Cohen was offensive coordinator before. So he's more comfortable at that position. The one real toss-up right now is still right tackles wide open. Uh, the returning starter, Jeremy Flax, is back uh, as well as their their top two backups there, but it doesn't seem like any of those guys have, have taken the job. So they're going to add another transfer in the next few weeks to either compete or take over that right tackle job. The early guy, uh, Cortland Ford, who's from uh, Southern Cal, a transfer. He, I think he's going to be on campus this week. He's, he's a name to watch, but they will try to add at least one, maybe two more transfers on the offensive line so they feel much better about their depth going into the fall. Defensively, this team was really good. I mean, that's what you would expect with a Mark Stoops coach team. Number two total defense in the SEC a season ago. Can they maintain that level? I know they had some some key losses, but, I mean, this is, again, Kentucky defense the past five, six years has just been good almost every year. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we had this conversation a little bit going into last season, but it's even more so now where they're at this part, this point as a program, especially on defense, where you lose guys who have played a ton 
but the players who are stepping into those roles, A, have some experience themselves. They're not like true freshmen. They're juniors, sophomores, seniors who have played a lot as backups. And B, were higher-ranked recruits than the guys they're replacing. So you lose in the heart of your defense, DeAndre Square and Jacquez Jones. They're two inside linebackers who I think more than anything that's going to hurt from a leadership standpoint. But the guys replacing them, Trevin Wallace and Derek Jackson, both pretty highly touted recruits, played a ton last year but when Square and Jones were hurt, uh, are probably more talented than both of those guys. They feel really good about their ability to do that. You saw it in the secondary a year ago. Um, Jalen Geiger was their starter at, at one of the safety positions. He gets hurt early in the season. Jordan Lovett, a redshirt freshman, steps in and has an you know, all-freshman team kind of kind of debut season and now has kind of taken that position and run with it. The one question mark um, is still at cornerback. You lose both of your starters there. They added J.Q. Hardaway, a transfer from Cincinnati. Jansen Dunn, a transfer from Ohio State. Uh, have another guy, Andrew Phillips, who played a lot as nickel for them last year and will move to corner. I think they feel good about their options, but none of them are very proven there. So you're kind of just relying on the fact that Mark Stoops is a DB coach. They've had this track record the last four or five years of producing NFL-level cornerbacks, and, and you hope that one of those guys emerges from the group there to, to kind of take over that spot. But it's kind of still a work in progress, I think. Let's talk about this series specifically because it's been, I think, eight years. 2014 was the last time the the road team won in this series. They came up there when the, fresh off of being ranked number one and beat Kentucky. Since then, it's it's been nothing but the home team winning. The game's in Starkville this year. Why has the home team dominated this series as much? Is it just these teams are just so close to each other that that home field advantage is what takes it over the top? Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that's part of it, but I mean, on the same, you know, same, the opposite end of that, I mean, we've seen Kentucky like last year, Kentucky was more talented um, than a team to Vanderbilt and they lost to them at home. So, mm-hmm. like, the, you know, it's not like Kroger Field has been some sort of impenetrable fortress for them at times over the years. I mean, obviously playing in Starkville is a, a much different scenario with the Cowbells and everything. It's it's hard. I mean, it's it's still the loudest stadium I've ever been in in the SEC when the Cowbells get going, even though it's not nearly as big as some of these other places. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a factor, I think. Uh, but, I, I, I mean, it just seems like one of those weird things. So it'll be interesting if, you know, obviously we talk about this series, if Mississippi State wins this year at home, that might be the end of it in terms of a regular series because when the, yeah. the schedule changes in 24, I doubt they're going to be permanent opponents. Who knows? Maybe there will be a surprise in there. Uh, but, it, you know, this has been such a back-and-forth part of it that uh, we may not get a long-term resolution with the way the SEC schedule is going to go. Well, I would love to ask you how a team spends $600 million and is 11th in the EPL table, but we'll skip that <laughs> and ask the, the question we've been asking everybody on the on these preview interviews, and that's when we get to the end of November after the Kentucky-Louisville game, what are we saying about Kentucky this year? Do they bounce back? Or are they still a 6-6 six and six kind of team? Where is this Kentucky team at the end of the season? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it all rests on whether Devin Leary stays healthy. If he does, I think they're, you know, in that 8-9 win conversation that they've been the last, you know, a couple times in the last five years. Mm-hmm. If he's not, they will be struggling to make a bowl game because their backup quarterback situation is just not at a spot where you, you're convinced any of those guys can win games in the league right now. I do think one really important thing for Kentucky – is this time a year ago, everybody was telling them how good they were. You know, all summer it was like, you're going to contend for the SEC East. You're going to maybe go to a New Year's Six Bowl game. They were ranked in the top 25 preseason for just the fifth time in program history. My hand is and raised, Frank, John. My hand is raised on this. Yeah, I, I was me, one of them. 
Me too. And so, and frankly, they did not handle that well. I mean, this has been a program that has been so successful in playing the chip on your shoulder, going to SEC media days every summer and talking about how nobody respects us and they're picking South Carolina ahead of us for whatever reason again. And with, you know, they did not handle success. And Mark Stoops has talked since basically his post game press conference at the Music City Bowl that something just did not feel right last season. He had one rant in spring practice, you know, a few weeks ago after a Saturday practice where he came out and said, you know, we don't have any leaders. Guys are entitled right now. So it's clear a big point of emphasis is getting that mentality back that they, that was so key in their rebuilding project. If they do that, if they can play the underdog card, the no respect card, because nobody's going to be picking them this year because they, you know, kind of dropped the ball a season ago, I think there's a path to be an eight win team, an outback bowl kind of team. That seems like the ceiling to me. But, you know, if, if some of these transfers pan out, uh, maybe they can have the season a year ago that everybody thought, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to pick it until I see it. Always interesting to find out about Kentucky. It's just such a huge swing game for both teams. Uh, year in, year out. Although this year was kind of weird. State had the better year despite losing to Kentucky. So yeah. that's an outlier, though, as, as you know. John Hale yeah. from the Lexington Herald Leader, man. Always a great pleasure to talk to you. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's head back to the SEC East in this edition of our SEC Spring ring Wraparound. Today we're talking with Dave Matter. He covers Mizzou for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Uh, has been covering the Tigers for quite a long time. Yeah, with this Missouri team last year, they had some really good wins. They beat South Carolina, um, uh, beat Florida. I'm sorry, didn't beat Florida, but but had some decent wins. But had some some head scratching losses. And the loss to Auburn is the one that really stands out to me. It feels like this is going to be an, another team in the conference that needs to find more consistency this year. Has that been a big watchword uh, thus far this spring? Yeah, you know, they, they're just a program that needs to turn the corner. They've been sitting at 500 for a long time now, and um, you know, Barry Odom was the head coach for four years. He left with a, a 500 record. If you look at just regular season games, Eli Drinkwitz through three years has been 17 and 17. So um, they've had some some promising wins, and I think that South Carolina one last year definitely is is part of that. Promising performances that didn't end up in wins, and they played Georgia as well as anybody last year. But you know, at, at the end of the day, close losses don't really amount to much. That that Auburn game, they had one, two, or three times late, and they, yeah. they found ways to lose. So they're a program that needs to figure out how to translate these tough, competitive games into victories. And then also, too, they had some blowouts last year. I mean, they got blown out at Kansas State, blown out at Tennessee. They weren't competitive in either of those games. Uh, for the, this program to take the next step, they've, they've got to avoid having games like that. I mean, they're not going to go unbeaten, but you just can't get um, just completely blown out of the water by by teams you know that aren't Alabama and Georgia on your schedule. Brady Cook, been in Missouri the past couple of years, has been, you know, we'd say solid as a starting quarterback, but missed the spring with an injury. Uh, that allowed, you know, transfer Jake Garcia to get some reps, a couple of freshmen. What does this quarterback room look like coming out of the spring? Well, Eli Drinkwitz is describing it as it's Brady Cook as the incumbent, but he has to beat everybody else out. It's not a – I wouldn't describe it as a wide-open competition, but it's also not guaranteed to be Brady Cook. He's going to have to play better this summer and in, in preseason camp than the rest to reclaim that job. They brought in Jake Garcia from Miami um, to challenge for the job. Sam Horn is a, a registered freshman. He got in one series in one game last year. And he's a guy that, you know, this program 
brought in to be kind of the franchise quarterback. He didn't really show enough last year to get more playing time, but they still have high hopes for him. They've got a four-star freshman coming in. Uh, he, he's not here this this semester, so he won't be here for the summer. So they're building some depth and they're building some competition for Cook. Uh, he he did do some some good things last year, but you know, I, I have we seen his ceiling? You know, is his ceiling high enough to for Missouri to contend in the SEC East this year? I'm not sure about that. So they're really going to have to get this quarterback situation figured out and evaluate and decide who their best guy is going forward. Mississippi State and uh, Missouri has something in common in that they both lost their one of their top receivers to the transfer portal. They both went to Georgia at State. It was Ra Ra Thomas, yeah. obviously Dominic Lovett <clears throat> over at Mizzou. Luther Burden, big five star recruit from a season ago, had had a good freshman campaign. You know, six touchdowns. You know, a little light on the yards per, per catch. That's a little surprising considering what an explosive athlete he, he is. I guess my question is, can Burden replace the production of Lovett? And if that is the case, who complements? Burden the way Burden complimented Lovett. Yeah, that's the expectation because they're they're moving Burden to Lovett's old position. Lovett played in the slot, and Drinkwitz's offense kind of gears toward that slot position because you don't face you know as much man coverage from the best cornerbacks on the other team. You face more zone. Um, you know you kind of get mismatches inside, and Lovett really capitalized on that last year, and you know became a first team All SEC receiver, led the team in targets led the team in catches, um, didn't lead them in snaps. Like he, he didn't play as much as some other guys, but he absolutely made the most of those opportunities. So their, their hope is that Burden will, will you know, move into that role, and that's the role he played all spring. And, you know, if not match Lovett's production, even eclipse it, because they feel like he's a guy that can really take advantage of the mismatches in the middle of the field. Uh, you know, he struggled a little bit with kind of press coverage and more physical receivers last year as a true freshman. It was the first time he's really kind of gone up against grown men before, and I think that was a, a big, steep learning curve for him. But he won't face the same kind of defensive pressure in the middle of the field. So you're right, though. The next question is, okay, who takes who takes off some heat off him inside and plays on the outside? Well, they brought in Theo Weiss, a uh, receiver from Oklahoma, former starter with the Sooners who's going to play some outside. Makai Miller is a second-year receiver they really like. Uh, they also brought in the old Miss receiver, Dennis Jackson. I know he didn't play a ton in Oxford, but they like what they saw this spring, so I think he's going to get a shot. Uh, and then they've got some other younger guys that you know will be in the mix, some incoming freshmen. Uh, but I think the, the real key is to get Burden you know, acclimated to playing in the middle of the field, that slot position, and see if he can be you know, an, an all-SEC-type receiver. When I look at the Missouri depth chart, one thing that does stand out to me is the offensive line. You know, three redshirt seniors and a grad transfer there. Usually an experienced offensive line like that is a a a good sign for a team coming into the season. Do you think this will be a strength for Missouri this year? It's probably actually one of the bigger question marks because it, it, really? as, as experienced as they are, they were not very good last year. I mean, they had a ton of penalties. They, you know, the offense itself – led all Power 5 teams in tackles for loss allowed. And a lot of that was on the line. They had issues at center. They did have some injuries on the right side. That Two guys had major injuries, season-ending injuries that were their right tackles. So they had to mix and match a lot. Uh, they did get Javon Foster to come back for his sixth year. He's an all-SEC left tackle, so they're pretty solid there. Um, they're still looking for a center. They are they're scouring the transfer portal trying to find a center because they, they believe they need to upgrade there. They brought in a right tackle from Eastern Michigan who played a lot. 
um, in the MAC, and they hope that can you know he can move into the SEC and be a day one starter. So it's a question mark. They also lost their uh, O line coach about a month ago. Uh, Marcus Johnson, who had been with Drinkwitz all three years, leaves to go to Purdue, and they had to hire a new coach. They bring in Houston's former coach Brandon Jones. Uh, so that's you know they're they're hiring an assistant who wasn't even here for spring football. Spring football was over by the time they hired him. So that group has a lot of catching up to do. But but like you said, they are pretty experienced. So you would think that would help the transition a little bit this summer. Defensively, you mentioned those two blowout losses, but other than those two games, Missouri didn't give up over uh, 27 points in a game all season. They held Georgia to their lowest point total of the season. Defensively, they were pretty good. They just had those two bad games. Can they take another step forward this year and be one of the better units in the conference? They expect to be, and they're talking about being the best defense in Missouri history. Now, that might be, uh, you know, that that might be kind of hyperbole expectation, but uh, a lot of guys came back. They had several players at all three levels, linebacker, defensive line, and the secondary, who could have gone into the NFL draft and been, you know, maybe a mid-round pick. But uh, thanks to NIL, they were able to keep those guys around for a fourth and fifth year in some cases. You know, they were the most improved defense in the SEC by just about every measure. And, and part of that was they were so bad in 2021 uh, that they could really only go up. But they, they really liked Blake Baker. They brought him in as defensive coordinator he was the architect of that turnaround, and they got really good buy-in from a bunch of their veterans, and they went out and addressed major needs going into last year through the transfer portal. They did it again this year, more so for depth purposes, but you've got an all-SEC defensive tackle in Darius Robinson, an all-SEC linebacker in Tyrone Hopper, uh, and then you've got really solid returning starters at every position in the secondary. So they have really, really high expectations. Um, you know, not just because you have a good year doesn't mean you're you're going to be great the next year. That goes for, you know, individual players and units. But but that group really expects to, you know, carry this team early uh, and really carry it all year long because there's just so many more uncertainties on the offensive side. This is the question we're asking everybody in these interviews uh, this spring. When we get to the end of the season, after Missouri plays Arkansas in the season finale, what are we saying about this Missouri team? Well, it's a really pivotal year. Um, if they're back at 500, um, I, I think you know Missouri's going to have a decision to make about the future of its program because uh, you just in this conference, you just can't sit around and be mediocre, be 500 for four years in a row. So the, the, the changes that Eli Drinkwitz made on offense, going out, looking for a new quarterback, bringing in an offensive coordinator for the first time in Kirby Moore, those moves have to work. If, if they don't work, and this is another 6-6 six and six team or even below 500, um, there could be some changes at Missouri, some big-time changes. You don't, you don't get to have four straight non-winning seasons in the SEC uh, and survive. It just doesn't happen. So uh, they've got to get the offense figured out. And I, I'm cautiously optimistic that they will. I think bringing in a, a coordinator is going to make a big difference because it takes a, a lot off of Drinkwitz's plate. He can be more of that CEO head coach that, and get a, a better feel for game days, better feel for his entire team, and not just calling plays on offense. Uh, so if you want to be optimistic, I think you'd say, okay, they'll win seven games, maybe eight. Maybe some of those close losses last year, they figure out how to win this year, and then they feel much better about the future of the program. We shall see Missouri, a very interesting team in 2023 to watch in the SEC. Dave Matter from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Man, really good stuff. Appreciate your time today. Okay, my pleasure.
Let's continue the spring series here on Thunder and Lightning with a game Mississippi State has probably got circled on the calendar. I think it's a very, very important one. Joining us now, he covers the Gamecocks for the state over in Columbia, South Carolina. But more importantly than that, he is my handsome young son, Ben Portnoy. Glad to have you back on the podcast. This team last year, there was nothing in its first 10 games that would have suggested what was going to happen in the final two games, where they had probably the best two wins in recent South Carolina history, when they beat Tennessee, I mean, beat isn't even the right word. They crushed Tennessee and then took out Clemson uh, there in the regular season finale, but then sort of went back, sort of reverted back in the bowl game and didn't play their best. Was this South Carolina team the 10 game South Carolina team or the two game South Carolina team? Uh, I'll start with just the simple answer of yes. Like, I mean, I think that this South Carolina team is so confusing, right? Because what you said is true. I think you look at the Tennessee game and the context around it, right? South Carolina at the time, they're sitting at six and four. They've just frankly had their teeth kicked in by a really pretty mediocre Florida team uh, in a game that was really, really ugly. I mean, just a lot of sloppiness, nothing that inspired too much confidence. And I remember leaving Gainesville and everyone, we were kind of talking and, Discussion was, all right, well, South Carolina is going to go six and six, and maybe they'll go play in Birmingham or Tampa or something like that. You lose the last two games to Tennessee and Clemson. And frankly, like at that time, I mean, I was still pretty high on Tennessee. I I had Tennessee at number one in the country, um, you know, ahead of their loss to Georgia and all of that. So you look at that, and then you get to the Tennessee game. Spencer Rattler's unconscious. He throws six touchdowns. I mean, really, it looks like, you know, I I mean, the best comparison I can even think of is really it's like, you know, it's the kind of night where Steph Curry goes off for 65 points. Like, it's just one of those nights. He just hits every throw. And I remember looking at my buddy kind of down press row halfway through the game and just kind of looking and I'm kind of mouthing him like, what the hell is going on? Because like there was just nothing again. Like there was nothing leading into that game where you kind of thought, okay, this is going to happen. They're going to go put up 60 whatever points on Tennessee. And, um, you know, and then to come back, beat Clemson the way they did. And in a game that was tight, but frankly, if you watch that game front to back, I mean, South Carolina probably, I mean, South Carolina was the better team. And I, I don't think they were just one point better. Like that was a game that South Carolina, they made some mistakes early, but really controlled things. And you felt like they were in the game, even when they were down, you know, 14, 17 points at a time. Um, and then again, the bowl game was, I think, interesting because they played really well early in the game. They came out, pulled out the stops and started up early and had some chances to kind of stretch out the lead and just depth issues and things like that kind of caught up with them and, and kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, hit a wall. So. When you look at this team, I think they're probably somewhere in the middle between the teams that beat Clemson and, and Tennessee and the team that kind of was six and four going into that. Like, I think that there's there's a lot of talent. I think this is a team that's going to be a little bit deeper as far as, you know, you look at what Shane Beamer's done recruiting wise and what they've brought in over a couple of years. There's going to be a little bit more um, feel for what they've got, at least depth chart wise. And, and you bring back a guy like Spencer Rattler. Obviously there's always the the thought of, Hey, he can go and win us a game. Um, and I think that, I, I think that you're going to see, I, I think you're going to see a South Carolina team that will probably have a good, that, you know, frankly, like this team could go six and six or they could go nine and three. Like there's a really wide range of outcomes here. And I think that, um, you know, Shane Beamer's proved that, that they've been good for an upset or two most years and, and we'll kind of see, but I mean, like you said, I think this Mississippi State game, especially given it's early in the season, it, it, it's a really, I think it's like underratedly one of the most interesting games of the SEC schedule this year, at least sort of the first half of the season. So I sort of have the same question that we just asked, but it's about Rattler now, because again, in those two games, you know, he had been heralded at one time as a potential number one pick. He looked like it in those two games, but the other 10 games just inconsistent. I mean, up and down throughout the season, 
Are we going to see a more consistent Spencer Rattler this season? I think so. I think there's also just a general comfort that comes with being in your second year in a place, second year in a program, second year with guys, coaches, et cetera. Um, you know, new play caller and Dowell Loggins who comes over from Arkansas. I, I think he's going to probably fit a little bit better. There's going to be a little bit more meshing and maybe sharing of ideas as far as what Spencer wants to do, what Dowell wants to accomplish um, offensively. And, and I think that there was, you know, not to say there was butting heads with Marcus Satterfield, who's off to Nebraska now, but I don't think that it was always necessarily, you know, it's the cliche thing, right? We talk all the time about how coaches put their, the best coaches put their players in the best positions to succeed. And it felt like at times South Carolina just wasn't doing that. And whether that's on Marcus Satterfield, Shane Beamer, whoever, like it just felt like that. And I think that when you look at Rattler overall season, like there were always moments where he looked really good and the numbers didn't necessarily measure up. But like there were games like when South Carolina goes to Kentucky and beats Kentucky on the road for the first time in, you know, close to a decade. He didn't, the numbers weren't great. I think he ended up with like 170 some yards, 200 yards, but was like nine of 12 in the second half for 130 yards or something, you know, like he, he's, he showed these moments. He showed these flashes that you felt like it could be there and it could click, but it never really got all the way there till the end of the season. So I think again, like you'll kind of see somewhere in between. I think that like, there's a world where Spencer Rattler probably should be one of the probably three or four highest, uh, you know, should finish probably third or fourth in the SEC or top three or four in the SEC in passing yards this year. I think that you bring back Juice Wells at receiver, that helps. Trey Knox, who they brought over from Arkansas at, at tight end, I think is going to be a problem for a lot of teams. Like, I think there's weapons. The running game's a question. They've got a lot of serious questions at running back, and I'm not really sure. You know, South Carolina had issues running the football last year, and they're in probably at a worse pitch spot at, at running back than they were a year ago. Kind of so leading think, into my next question there, yeah, because that exacerbates I, some of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought I thought the the transfer of of Marshawn Loy was a surprise. I thought he was a good fit there at South Carolina. I thought he was becoming a bigger part of the offense, and now he's off to Southern Cal. You just traded one USC for another. Now he, he now like you mentioned. There's not a lot there at that running back position that scares you. Do they have somebody that they feel like can count on to run the football this year? I mean, that's the thing is like right now you look at South Carolina's roster, they've got three scholarship, well, I guess really two scholarship running backs, three scholarship running backs if you count Mario Anderson, who they brought over from Newberry, which is a Division II school here in South Carolina, but he was a finalist for the Harlan Hill Trophy, which is the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy at D2. Right. Um, you know, he had well over 2,000, 3,000 yards rushing in his time there. Um, he's a guy that I think can help them a little bit. Juju McDowell has been dangerous at times, but he's also 5'9", 175 pounds, sopping wet. So I think that he's not a guy that's going to be able to carry the ball 20 times in a game, right? Um and I think that then you look at it like to carry on Joyner, who who has been at South Carolina for, it seems like 25 years uh, has played receivers, played running back. Like he's gotten some reps at, at, at running back um, after starting his career as a quarterback. So they think that he can maybe give them a little bit of a change of pace. But again, like there's still not really a true number one there. And I think that South Carolina's obviously hit the portal hard and really tried to get, bring in a running back because I think that, you know, Marshawn Lloyd for his quirks and, and things here and there, like he was still a really dynamic guy and a guy who could bounce off and create some issues for you on the, on the edge and with some serious speed. So uh, South Carolina has got to find something at running back because right what they're, where they're situated right now, I think is an issue. And I think that if they don't bring in a running back, there's going to be problems because, you know, you can say, sit back and let Spencer Rattler, Spencer Rattler throw the ball 45 times, but if you have no semblance of a running game, then it's going to create some predictability. Now that said, maybe they do some things in the screen game and the wildcat situation to kind of stretch things out and get sort of manufacture a run game a little bit or a short passing game that sort of replaces that on some level. You know, we've seen that with Mississippi State in the air raid a little bit the last few years, right? Similar yeah. thing. So 
Um, I, I think you'll see that, but I, I mean, South Carolina running back is a big, big question mark. And I think that if they don't address it, it's going to really hamper what this team's going to be able to do offensively. Defensively, this team, another, just again, just inconsistent. They, they, they need to be improved defensively if they want to take a step forward this year. Where do you think they need to be improved the most? South Carolina, South Carolina's defense is really interesting. And really the last two years have been kind of similar in that they've had really good moments. They've had some games where, I mean, they, I think it was last year or excuse me, the year before they led the sec in takeaways. Uh, they, they've been toward the top of the sec and in, in turnover margin for the most part defensively um, and have done a really good job. there creating extra possessions, but they haven't had the pass rush has been a little bit questionable at times. Um, linebacker, there were some depth issues there last year with some injuries and things like that. But the secondary has largely been really good. Now you're losing two guys in Cam Smith and Darius Rush, who are both going to be, you know, Cam is a sort of borderline first round, early second round pick. Uh, Darius probably a second round, third round guy. Like you're losing two legitimate NFL corners, but I, you bring back some real, real pieces there in, in DQ Smith and Nicky Manwari, who were both freshman All Americans last year. Uh, and we're guys that are, I think are going to be re- only going to get better and, and wouldn't surprise me if you find them on all SEC teams by the end of the year. Um, I, I think that defensively, again, like you said, they need to be a little more consistent. They need to create some pass rush, kind of like we talked about with running back. They've got issues at defensive end. Jordan Birch and, and Gilbert Edmond are both off to Oregon and Florida State, respectively. And, you know, we were kind of jo- <laughs> we kind of half joked about it, but we went out there for the last practice of spring before the spring game. And there were literally two defensive ends on the field healthy <laughs> and uh you know, I, I don't know if you or I has any eligibility left that can that can get out there and help out, but South Carolina's got to do something to find find some pieces there. And there's I, some I, won't, I won't say the whole quote, but I'm too old for that. If you know what I'm saying, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think the defensive end is going to be an issue. I think they're going to be better at linebacker. I think they're still going to be good in the secondary. I think there's potential there. I think that overall, like if you're just summing it up in basically one sentence, it's going to be a team that's a little bit lighter on experience. They're going to be a little bit younger. But I think there's a higher ceiling. Like they're going to be a little, they're going to be more talented, but they're going to be more inex- inexperienced. So you could see a wide range of things here with the South Carolina defense. If we look ahead to this game against Mississippi State and South Carolina, and I tell you, look, the loser of this game is going to go seven and five at best, and the winner of the game is going to be nine and three. I mean, you don't have any trouble believing that, right? This is this is the swing game for both teams, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think that like it's one of those games that both teams circle on the calendar and say, hey, we need to win this one. Right. And I think that, you know, both Mississippi State and South Carolina are kind of in similar positions, I think, and it's on some level in the sense of like you're probably fighting sort of toward that upper second tier of, of either division in the last year that we're going to have divisions, presumably. Um, you know, I think that both teams bring back some experience, obviously two experienced quarterbacks. That's going to be a fun matchup. Uh, and I think it's a game that early on the season, early in the season, like kind of sets a tone a little bit. And South Carolina had a game like that early last year against Arkansas, where it turned into a shootout. And I think it was a final like 54, 42 or somewhere in there. And, um, and I think that when you look at games like that, like this kind of feels like a game like that. Now it helps South Carolina. I think you get the game at home, you know, for Mississippi state people who haven't been to Columbia, like it's a really great atmosphere. And it's, it's, I think one of the more underrated probably game day atmospheres in the sec. Yeah. And I think, and I think that, you know, it's a tough place to play. And I think that that'll, that'll show out. I think, it, you know, there's a potential for this to be a top 25 matchup, depending how the first few weeks go. Um, and I think, again, two young coaches as well. I mean, Zach Arnett, obviously, in sort of one of his early, you know, big games and for Shane Beamer, a third year, but still still a young guy at, you know, 45, 46. So uh, I think that this is going to be it, it's a game that I'm really, really curious um, to see what happens, because like you said, I think that this is definitely a swing game for both teams. And again, like I think, frankly, like this ends up being a, a really 
this is going to be a really fun game. I think it's going to be a really weird game. And I think it's going to turn into one of those games that we look back and think, man, that was like a really, really fun game that we didn't really talk about enough early in the season, like SEC at large. uh, That should be a really fun one to, to watch, I think. I hate where this game is on the schedule for state between LSU and Alabama. I mean, that is yeah. just, that's a heck of a sandwich there. Uh, yeah. We're asking this question of everybody who does these interviews, so it's your turn. When we get to the end of November, state or uh, uh, Clemson, South Carolina wraps up. What are we saying about the South Carolina team? I think you're going to say that's a good question. I think you're going to say that this is going to be another step in the right direction. Like I think that this South Carolina team, if you end up going, even if you go six and six, get to a bowl game, go seven and five, eight and four, somewhere in there, like that's still a step in the right direction. And I think that, you know, Shane Beamer's gotten a lot of press about sort of the positive vibes and things like that. And I know people, you know, probably scoff a little bit and roll their eyes like, okay, they were seven and six and eight and five. You know, what are we really talking about here? I get that. You know, they haven't had that breakthrough three season. um, And I get that. But when you look at what Beamer and this staff inherited from Muschamp and sort of the mess that was in 2020, um, whether that's a product of, you know, the COVID year, which is hard on everyone, the coaching change, sort of where things had gone, just top to bottom, depth-wise. Uh, this was a team that, and I, I think you and I probably had this conversation when when I moved over to Columbia, you know, shortly after Shane Beamer got hired, was that, you know, if Beamer could basically just avoid going 1-11 in his first year, he could still sell a vision and things would be okay. And I think that the fact that they've done what they've done over the last two years is impressive, and I think you'll see South Carolina do something similar this year. I think if they go 7-5, and 8-4, and four, I think people should be really happy. They're on pace for what could be and, and realistically could should be a top 12, top 10 recruiting class, which is unheard of around Columbia. I mean, this is on pace to be probably the best recruiting class that, that South Carolina has ever signed, you know, with a long way to go. But uh, it's got that kind of feel to it. So if South Carolina keeps that momentum and, and finishes, you know, seven and five, eight and four and gets to a bowl game and finishes signing an, uh, another top 15 class or a top 15 class, like people should feel pretty good about where things are. I could be wrong. I don't think state's been to Columbia since 2013, which is crazy okay. considering that this, they're in the same conference as South Carolina. But yep. long time since these two teams have met up. We'll see what happens when we get to there in September. Ben Portnoy from the state, as always. Thank you for coming on, man. I man. Appreciate you. Today, the spring wraparound takes us to Rocky Top. Let's talk about the Tennessee Volunteers with Ben McKee from Gold Vols 24-7. Tennessee, one of the more intriguing teams out there this year been to me because when you talk about their expectation level I think people have sort of gotten back on board with Tennessee as a power and Tennessee is going to be a good team this year but they have got some big time players to to replace is this Tennessee program sort of a, a reload program once again not yet not yet they're getting there and I don't think there's going to be a, a steep drop off you, you you do see some some college football programs that aren't uh, as successful over the history of college football. They, they kind of have a, a great year here and there and, and then a drastic drop-off. I don't think that's at all the case. I, I still think they're going to be a good football team. Uh, the question is how good, uh, but they haven't reached the point to where they can just reload every single season uh, like in Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, obviously. Um, but they're hoping to do so with some key additions uh, at different positions. Uh, they went out and added Dante Thornton, that receiver, in, in the hopes of replacing a guy like a Jalen Hyatt and, and Cedric Tillman, who were just drafted. So uh, they have a bunch of guys like that that they've added that that are hoping can kind of pick up where the guys that just left uh, left off. Uh, but no, they're, they're not in a position to where they can just reload every single season. And, and that's not a Josh Heupel problem. That That is a... 
uh, Jeremy Pruitt problem, to be frank, and and not just Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, it was obviously a, a decade uh, plus a little bit more uh, of yeah. misery uh, before Josh Heupel got to <laughs> Tennessee. Uh, so th- there's a lot of people involved, but uh, I, I think the further removed we are from the Jeremy Pruitt situation, the, the more and more egregious his tenure was. And uh, because of the way that went down with him being fired and uh, the mass es- exodus of, of players transferring, uh, it left uh, the cupboards very bare uh, depth talent wise. So uh, they, they've been able to get over the hump and have success by uh, their star players being star players. Uh, but you're not a true program that can reload like those other schools I mentioned a moment ago uh, until you have recruited to to the point to where you have talent and depth and the the depth part has been lacking. They're starting to get there, but at this point, uh, because there there was such a big rebuild in that sense, uh, a lot of that depth is is very young football players that will, will probably contribute this year, but they're not guys that you're going to want to rely on right away. So uh, I do think they're getting there under Josh Heupel, but not yet, just because of the just how big of a mess he took over from Jeremy Pruitt. And two years ago, Joe Milton was named the starting quarterback to start the season for, for Tennessee. And you could see the athleticism, you see the big arm, but he just couldn't put the consistency together. Hendon Hooker take, takes over, and we all know what happened from there. What's different with Joe Milton now than it was two years ago? He's starting to look more like a quarterback and not just a, a guy with the best physical traits in the country. Uh, because if it, if it's just about physical traits, I mean, Joe Milton is up there with with anybody, even this past season, uh, he he has an absolute rocket of an arm uh, and just incredible arm strength, and that's great, obviously. But uh, that that's no good if you can't um, put a little touch on the football and and throw your receivers open and anticipate throws and uh, fill the the pocket and and be a leader and and all those other things that come with being a quarterback. It's not just about having great God-given abilities it's it's about having a feel for the position it's no different than a a pitcher in baseball having a 102 mile an hour fastball and that's great and all but if you don't know where it's going then what's the point of having a 102 mile an hour fastball because you're, you're just going to walk everybody or hit everybody and, and that's kind of where Joe Milton was uh the the natural talent has always been absolutely obvious uh, even from the moment he stepped foot on campus. And, and that's why he beat out Hendon Hooker um, initially two years ago, like you mentioned, just because of the natural talent. I mean, it, it's it's up there with anybody in the country, truly. Um, but what separated Hendon from Joe is is all the the other things that I just mentioned, the, the, the stuff that comes with being a quarterback. So I, I do think Joe has already taken a step forward. Uh, that first year where he did lose the starting job, he he displayed none of those things, but this past season he comes back after an offseason with Josh Heupel and Alex Golish and Joey Halsley, the offensive staff, and you see him putting touch on his passes. You see him anticipating throws and throwing guys open. You saw legitimate improvements. He he didn't look just just like an athletic freak back there. He he looked like an actual quarterback, and, and you saw that pay off the last two games of the season against Vanderbilt and against Clemson in the Orange Bowl. So this is a a big offseason for. Joe, just continuing to to work on all of the small details and uh, of being a, a quarterback, and I I don't know that he's going to have a Hendon Hooker type of year because Hendon was 
uh, firmly in the Heisman conversation up until he tore his ACL. So I, I don't know if he's going to be able to replicate 30-plus touchdowns to, to two or three interceptions, uh, but I do think he's he's going to have a good year as he continues to improve under Josh Heupel. I listened to a podcast recently, the, the Cover 3 podcast with CBS Sports, and Bud Elliott was on there talking about Tennessee's offense, the, the veer and shoot, and he talked about what made it so difficult to work against and what this, this sort of secret fraternity of coaches that run this offense and how tight-lipped they are about the concepts and things like that. You see this offense up close all the time. What makes it so tough for defenses to work against? Just that there's so many things to defend. I mean, it's it's really that simple. I know everybody likes to to call it a, a gimmick offense, and I, I I think that's probably fair to to say uh, because they are trying to use the the tempo uh, in their favor. Uh, that that's kind of like uh, the candy that they're trying to get the toddler to to focus on. But I, I hesitate to to say that that's a, a fair thing to say because by definition it is a gimmick offense. If you look up gimmick in in the dictionary, it, it kind of fits what this Tennessee offense is. But it, it's not that's not the only reason that Tennessee is having success under Josh Heupel. Or and I shouldn't even say Tennessee. I should say Josh Heupel himself. I mean he's been successful everywhere he's been, especially the the latter part of his career. UCF, Missouri. Uh, I know there was an interesting situation there at Oklahoma, his alma mater, where he was the OC. But um, really since then, he, he's been successful everywhere. Uh, and it's not just because he, he loves tempo or the, the wide wide receiver splits to, to where the receivers are splitting out so much further than you typically see. Josh Heupel is, is a great game planner, uh, a great play caller. Uh, he, he constantly is dialing up plays to to get guys open. I mean, just go back and watch Jalen Hyatt against Alabama and his five touchdowns this past season on the third Saturday in October. Uh, and, and there were plays like that all throughout the season. And and really, even going back to year one, when, when he didn't have a ton to work with, he was scheming guys open. So, yeah, everybody focuses on the, the tempo and, and getting to the line of scrimmage and hiking it before uh, the defense is set. And that puts a lot of pressure on the defense. But what I think separates the offense on top of the tempo is, is that that's one thing, but then he's adding wrinkles week in and week out that defenses haven't seen yet or aren't prepared for, and that's just making life even more tough when they're focused on the tempo as much as they are. Uh, and Hendon Hooker has had to be a, a great decision maker, and that's what made him so successful. Is in, in this offense, Tennessee's quarterbacks have to to make so many decisions so quickly, and Hendon did that at an elite level, and that's why you only saw him throw two interceptions this past season and, and have over 30 touchdown passes. Uh, it, it was pretty remarkable. So uh, it, it, it's it's a very unique offense, and it's one that I think is, is tough to defend for, for so many reasons, but I, I don't think people realize just how smart of an offensive mind Josh Heupel is. I, I think they just credit it to the the tempo stuff, but it, it's not just that. He, he is truly a, a genius on that side of the football. Yeah, and, and the 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 secrecy is sort of is sort of funny to me. I, I like that because you know sometimes you feel like you know something and you don't. I, I get a kick out of the idea that these coaches are like, oh, we can't really talk about our play calling and stuff like that. They say when they have coaches conventions and uh these guys do talk, you can't get a seat in the room because it's just it's just so so Tighten it. I don't know. I don't get it, but whatever. Uh, defensively, this team was pretty good last year. They're only 
two games that sort of stand out, and one of them's a win. They weren't good against Alabama, but Alabama's really good. And then there's that South Carolina game, which might be the biggest outlier in college football uh, from a season ago. You know, what is this defense going to look like in 2023? I, th- I think it's going to be a, a better defense uh, than it was a year ago. Uh, it, it was kind of a a, a a different defense in the sense of like the front seven you had confidence in. Uh, w- one of the reasons Tennessee was able to win double-digit football games last year is obviously Hendon Hooker, Jalen Hyatt, uh, all the fun toys that, that they had offensively. But the biggest reason they were able to make such a big jump and beat Alabama and Florida, uh, LSU, Clemson, all, all of these schools that have been beating Tennessee down for the last decade, like we talked about earlier, the, the biggest reason Tennessee was able to take a jump and beat those schools is because of what they did in the trenches, both along the offensive line and along the defensive line. I mean, Tennessee, Darnell Wright, is the 10th overall pick in the draft on this past Thursday night, and, and that kind of speaks for itself. He he led the charge uh, along the offensive line, but then the defensive line maybe didn't have a Darnell Wright in terms of star player or, or first-round pick, but they have Rodney Garner, their defensive line coach, who is one of the, the greatest SEC assistant coaches in the history of SEC football, been at Georgia, been at, at Auburn. Uh, now at Tennessee, and and he has a long, long list of of guys who are playing in the NFL. He he has worked wonders uh, with that defensive line room. Uh, that that defensive line room was one of the positions that lacked the most talent and depth uh, when Josh Heupel took over, and and for him to to squeeze out as much lemonade out of that lemon as he did uh, was truly incredible. So. And the linebackers were pretty good as well. They were frustrating at times, uh, but very athletic, and that led to some plays. Uh, and Tim Banks' defense, the defensive coordinator at Tennessee, kind of is all gas, no breaks, just really focused on being in the backfield. And that hurts them at times, uh, but it also leads to a lot of TFLs and and sacks and, and plays behind the line of scrimmage. Uh, negative plays, which is obviously good for a defense. Uh, but the secondary was a big issue. When, when Tennessee's defense did struggle last year, it was because of the secondary. I mean, they, there was just a, a real lack of talent and lack of depth uh, back there. Didn't didn't really have anybody step up. Maybe a Danico Slaughter and Wesley Walker towards the end of the season, uh, and that bodes well for this upcoming year. Uh, but it, it was a it was kind of like two defenses that Tennessee fans had to watch last year because you had confidence in the front seven uh, to slow down the run game, the traditional running game, which they did. But then guys like Anthony Richardson had just absolute field days against them. You talk about that Alabama game. Uh, Bryce Young and Jameer Gibbs were just an absolute nightmare for Tennessee all afternoon long. And and part of that was because the secondary was, was so, so poor. Uh, so I, I don't have a ton of confidence that it's that it's just going to be night and day different this season. Uh, I mentioned earlier that they're going to be relying on some young guys to to hopefully take big steps forward, and especially back there on the back end. So, uh, and and they did have some veterans graduate uh, again. I said earlier that the the defensive line didn't really have a first round pick like a Darnell Wright, but they they did have some veterans and, and at linebacker as well. So uh, th- they're going to be younger but I do think they're going to be more talented and have more depth. It's just going to be up to those young players. How much do they grow this summer? How much do they improve? And just how ready are they going to be to make an impact? Because if they're ready to make an early impact, then uh, the the defense should be one of the the better defenses in the SEC. Here's the question we've asked everybody in these, these interviews we've done over the past few weeks. When we get to November, after Tennessee plays Vanderbilt, 
Where are the volunteers? Are they a realistic challenger to Georgia? Can they get in the SEC championship game? Where are they? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very interesting question. Not not trying to dodge it. I, I just yeah. think there's so many unknowns uh, still at the beginning of May, and more so with with Georgia. Uh, who who is Georgia's quarterback going to be? Uh, and they obviously have to replace a, a ton of defenders who are now <laughs> all conveniently playing with the Eagles. Um, but <laughs> yeah. they they are one of those programs, like we talked about earlier, though, that, that they reload every year. Uh, it doesn't really matter how many guys they lose on defense. They're still going to be absolutely great and probably the, the best defense in the country. So you, you certainly pick Georgia to, to be the favorite. But in terms of the gap between Georgia and, and the others in the SEC East, uh, I think it'll depend on on Tennessee's offense, quite frankly, and obviously it'll it'll pen, depend on the defense and how much they improve. Like I just got done talking about, but how big of a drop off is there from Hendon Hooker's offense to to Joe Milton's offense? I I think that's the big question. I, I said earlier, I think Tennessee's going to be a good football team, but it, is it a a nine and three good football team? Uh, is it a, a ten and two good football team, or or is it a team that? Uh, at the end of November, they're in position to potentially win the East. I, I think that's a, a huge question mark at, at this point. But uh, I would obviously certainly pick um, Georgia uh, <laughs> to win the East as of now. But I, again, I, I think Tennessee will have a, a good season. And and if Joe Milton finally puts it all together, if, if it finally clicks for Joe Milton and he just absolutely takes off, Tennessee could absolutely beat Georgia. Tennessee plays Georgia – uh, in Knoxville this mm-hmm. season. Uh, it's the SEC. You have other tough games that you'll have to handle as well, and, and that'll factor into the race. But it, if it all clicks for Joe Milton, because he's going to have some weapons on the outside, m- maybe not the, the household names that people are aware of, but Tennessee has some players they're really excited about at skill positions on, on offense. Uh, if if they click with Joe Milton, then then it's an offense that, that can replicate last year's success. And and part of it is Josh Heupel's offense. I, I think Josh Heupel's offense is going to be successful kind of regardless of, of its personnel. Um, but if, if it finally clicks for Joe Milton, because he was a big-time quarterback coming out of high school, signed with Michigan, didn't really work out there, transferred to Tennessee, didn't work out right away. But uh, he looks like a completely different guy, both as a leader, both as a quarterback, since he stepped foot on Tennessee's campus. And that's because of Josh Heupel's ability to develop quarterbacks. If it finally clicks for him then Tennessee can absolutely challenge uh Georgia to win the SEC East we shall see it was interesting to see Tennessee being back next year now we'll see if they can handle success Ben McKee go Vols 24-7 man thanks a lot it was really good info thanks Brian let's wrap up our look around the SEC this spring with the Vanderbilt Commodores Robbie Weinstein from Vandy 24-7 is going to join us now and Robbie this was a, a a fun football team to watch at the end of the season. Played very competitively, got some wins that maybe nobody expected. You know, obviously a bad loss to Tennessee at the end, but Tennessee was one of the best teams in college football all year last year. I'm willing to, to write that one off. What's the mood in Nashville going into this season? Yeah, I, I think it continues to be, you know, a feeling that the team is, is trending upward. Uh, when Clark Lee came in to take over for Derek Mason, you know, it was kind of... Uh, it's hard for an SEC football program to get much lower. I mean, they didn't win a game in that COVID season. Uh, they they didn't win a game in the league the year before. And I, I think in terms of the overall roster, you know, there were one or two good pieces here and there, but the general team speed just wasn't wasn't good enough. And um, 
I, I think everything kind of had to be blown up a little bit. And, uh, you know, one of the big things that Clark Lee did when he came in was hire Barton Simmons, formerly from 24-7 Sports, and really revamped the uh, recruiting strategy. And, I mean, you guys know how it goes in college football, where especially if you're relying heavily on recruiting out of the high school ranks, now that doesn't show up right away on the field because these guys need a couple of years. Uh, but this could be the first season where, you know, they did play a fair amount of true freshmen last year, and a couple of them contributed and were good right away. But I, I think this is kind of the first season where, you know, a large, large portion of that that first class, the 2022 class that Clark Lee brought in, is actually going to play a real role. And uh, so there's a lot of excitement to see how those guys do. The early returns from the spring look pretty good. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't always translate into wins right away. So there's certainly um, some uncertainty, I think. When I look at this team a season ago, and, and why I ask myself, what do they have to be better at? Defense is the first thing that stands out to me. Uh, they had a three-game stretch, a four, a five-game stretch. I'm sorry, where they gave up 45 or more points. They were one and four in that stretch, and that's kind of you know, obviously Alabama, Georgia, everybody struggled with them, but Ole Miss and, and Wake Forest, those were games. Bandy played pretty well offensively, and if the defense had just been a little bit better, might have had a chance to win. Why will Vanderbilt be better defensively in 2023? Yeah, I mean, they, they were absolutely, they were one of the worst defensive teams in the entire country last season, not just in the SEC or the Power Five. Uh, the reason why that they'll be better is the pass defense last season was, was really a mess. And I think that it will be, uh, it probably won't even be average this season, but I think just going from absolutely awful, like bottom five in FBS to, you know, merely below average can really help them. They, they did not have a pass rush last season. I think they had something like something ridiculous, like six or seven sacks all year. And a big reason why was that Miles Capers, who was you know far and away their best pass rusher coming into the season, had a really good fall camp. He uh, suffered some sort of serious knee injury, a season-ending knee injury late in camp. And so all of a sudden, you really only had one quality pass rusher on the team, and he just isn't available for the whole season. He will be back, and then they got a couple true freshmen in there last season, Darren Agu and B.J. Ducate, who like didn't really produce a lot, but they started to show a little bit more, started to flash late in the season. And Agu, who's 6'6", 250 pounds, and Tennessee wanted him. He was one time committed to Notre Dame. Uh, he looks quite good in the spring. So they're going to have more of a pass rush. Again, it's not going to be even an average pass rush by SEC standards. But it may not be the worst pass rush in the league, and, and they were far and away the worst in the league in that area last season. So that really overexposed the corners and, and the safeties, who you know weren't that great to begin with. I, I don't think, especially in terms of depth. So that that pass rush to me is, is going to be the key to unlocking at, at least an okay defense this season, and uh, I, I think it's going to be passable. At the quarterback position, it looks like it's going to be A.J. Swan, uh, who had a, I thought was pretty good last year. Ten touchdowns, only two picks. Uh, had his moments there. As a full-time starter, do you think he can handle this team and get them through th- uh, 12 games? Yeah, I, I do, and it's not going to be perfect. Um, like, for instance, he and he showed it in the spring. He showed it last fall uh, during fall camp, less so during the actual season. He uh, is going to throw some interceptions. Like, I think he'll probably throw upwards of 10 interceptions, maybe 12 or 13, if he's, you know, if he's able to start all 12 games. Uh, But, uh, you know, I think if you're Vanderbilt, he is going, he has a big time arm. He has an NFL arm. And so he's going to stretch the field and put stress on defenses that Vanderbilt hasn't been able to do at the quarterback position for a really long time. And so I think you can kind of live with some of the turnovers 
uh, in exchange for really opening up the offense a lot more. Uh, I like I don't really have a whole lot of questions about his talent level as a passer. I, I thought it's been really impressive, honestly, since he came in as an early enrollee to see his kind of not only his arm strength, but his touch and his feel for you know kind of like uh, throwing fades and stuff like that 20, 25 yards downfield. So he's not a mobile guy by any means, but uh, he is mobile enough at least to kind of escape the rush and, and, you know, scramble in order to throw as opposed to scramble to run. And uh, I, so I'm really bullish on him. Like, I don't think he's going to be all SEC by any means this season, but uh, he definitely gives them the ability to stretch the field and, and he's going to make plays for them. And I think he can be a quality starting quarterback, like on a bowl caliber team. I, I definitely think that's the case. While we're talking about quarterbacks, I would be remiss if having you on to not ask you about Mike Wright, who transferred from Vanderbilt to Mississippi State. I think he's going to be more of a you know a plug and play. They'll have some packages for him, some play calls for him, kind of guy down here at MSU. I don't think he's beating out Will Rogers. What kind of athlete is Mike Wright going to be for Mississippi State this year? Sure, yeah, I, I mean, and, and Vanderbilt uh, really liked him not only as you know a player. I think there were limitations in terms of his arm, but. Uh, he uh, it was a really high caliber like leader and citizen in the locker room and all that sort of stuff. Uh, in terms of his legs, I think he you know he's a great guy to have if if you're backing up Will Rogers and you can throw him in there in some situational type of looks because he has like legit four four speed. I mean I've seen him a number of times during practices in fall camp or spring ball or whatever just house a run like from eighty yards out. Uh, he has legit track speed. He's not really like shifty. He's not going to cut. A lot, but in terms of straight line speed, he's as good as it gets at the quarterback position. And uh, you know, I think even though he has some limitations in terms of accuracy uh, and doesn't have like the cleanest throwing motion or anything like that, he, you do have to like so, so to some extent respect him as a passer. And when you combine that with the legs, like that does open a lot of things up. So I mean, I think he could be like probably a lower level starting quarterback in the Power Five. Like Northwestern could have used him, for instance, before they got Ben Bryant from Cincinnati this week. So to have Mike Wright, who has won SEC games as a starting quarterback, you know, as your backup at Mississippi State, that that's great. I mean, that that's as good as it gets. And yeah, Vanderbilt was ready to move on and, and roll with AJ Swan for the future, but that doesn't mean that Mike Wright isn't a good player and, and can't be useful for Mississippi State because he definitely can be. I look at Vandy's schedule. I, I, three games stand out to me: Ole Miss, Kentucky, Missouri. Three of the two of those are at home. Uh, Ole Miss is a series that Vanderbilt has been very competitive in. They've gotten a lot of wins over the Rebels through the years. What's their record in those three games? Because I think that's what's going to determine are they a bowl team or not. Yeah, I think they'll definitely – like I would be really surprised if they don't win at least one of them. Like uh, They already beat Kentucky last season. Uh, Mizzou is probably the one that I would look at as I might – you know, I'd be tempted to favor them in that game because of the advantage at quarterback, and that's a, that's a home game. Ole Miss, I think, is a tough matchup for them because they don't really do well, or at least they haven't to this point, against – spread offenses that really chuck the ball around uh they they're you know they've been trying really hard like when when clark lee came in allegedly their starting safeties ran like four nine and four nine five in the 40 and they've really tried hard to improve the speed on the back end and they've done that but these guys are, are young players right and so you know i think there's an you know an element of like being able to recognize what an offense is doing and react quickly and react with the you know correct choice that is difficult um you know, for a young player to play against Ole Miss. So I'd say, you know, it's hard to say either one and two or two and one. But, you know, I think that they can. Um, I, I think you're right. They probably do need to win two of those games to get to a bowl game. But 
I do kind of like their chances that Wake Forest, to be honest, uh, without Sam Hartman this season. And Auburn is coming in, and you know I don't know that they're that great either. So yeah. the schedule is so much lighter for them this season because uh, Wake, I think, is going to take a step back, even though that's a road game, and they're replacing Alabama with Auburn. So um, you know, considering I think they were maybe a little fortunate to go five and seven last season and weren't really a five-win caliber team, but uh, you know the schedule really sets up well for them. I think it kind of leads into the final question, which is the question we've asked everybody on who's done these interviews thus far. When we get to the end of the season, the week after uh, Tennessee Vanderbilt. What are we saying about the Commodores there at the end? I, I think they're going to go six and six. And so what you would probably be saying in that case is that the rebuild is is on pace and that, you know, you're fi- finally starting to see results from Clark Lee. Uh, you know, the reason why I'm thinking that is, is you know, at the end of the day, I, they, I think they're going to be a substantially improved team from last season in terms of the quality of football. I, I think they could take a big step forward. So I think they're going to win one more game than last season, but you know, I think they're, you know, in terms of the quality of team, it could be more like a two or three win improvement. But I think they just got really, really lucky to win that Kentucky game last year and probably should have been at best a four and eight team. Uh, so I, to me, I mean, they've just got so much more athleticism uh, and talent, especially on defense, on offense. They've got a clear identity. They've got good wide receivers. They've got a, you know, I think a good quarterback. They return like 75 starts on the offensive line. So uh, I think they're being overlooked a little bit. Like, I don't expect them to push, you know, Georgia or any of the best teams on their schedule by any means. Like, I think the Tennessee game will be probably a massive blowout again. But I think they're going to be competitive enough to, you know, maybe they can, if Florida is a mess, can they go to Florida and beat them again for the second year in a row? Maybe, because they'll have the quarterback advantage, probably. Uh, So I I think six wins is very attainable. Again, they're not going to knock anyone's socks off, but... Uh, they're finally going to be playing competent football again like we started to see at the end of last season. I like it when Vanderbilt's interesting. They were a fun team to watch there at the end of the season. We'll see if that can continue into 2023. Robbie Weinstein, 24-7 Sportsman, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there you have it. That's the SEC East uh, part of the spring wraparound that we did. Great interview. want to thank everybody who participated. Uh, some good people there. Dave Matter, Jordan Hill, Robbie Weinstein, Graham Hall, Ben McKee, Ben Portnoy, and John Hale. You'll hear from a lot of those guys again as we get into the fall um, when we're talking about uh, those games on the MSU schedule. We'll hear about them uh, as during the summer as well uh, for the opponent previews that we do for Kentucky uh, and for South Carolina. So, again, thanks all to all those guys. Hope you guys like this compilation. We'll have the SEC West one out a little later this week. I'm Brian Haydad. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Thunder and Lightning. Talk Mississippi Media Production.